0: It is November, and high on my list of things to be grateful for is the wonderful people who support this podcast by being a member of my Patreon page. I want to send out love and thanks to Mary Thomas, Chris Bloom, Terry Smith, Dale Hosek, Captain America, Stephen Malio, Liz Brunson, Levi Petrie, Betsy Hodges, John Munson, Belle Pori, Rob Barnett, Randy Brown, Steve Anzek, Yetta, Sylvan Groth, Jeff Ulmer, David and Jennifer von Ebers, and Sean Poole. You too can get a personal thank you note from me, a shout out on at least one episode a month, plus access to unedited videos of the episodes. Go to patreon.com slash to sign up for as little as a dollar a month. You also can sign up for a month free just to check out if this is something you'd enjoy supporting. Now, on to the show.
1: Bruce Springsteen was ubiquitous at that time in North America. He was on the music magazines, he was in the newspapers, he was on the radio all the time. So I don't remember a Bruce Springsteen aha moment. I don't even remember that my brother was into Bruce Springsteen. I, I know that I heard some of Bruce's music when my brother was working on his car, but my brother was more a Bon Jovi guy. So I, I don't have an aha moment. The album, I guess, that was the aha moment for me, cause it was the first one that I went and took my own money and, and bought a Bruce Springsteen album at the store. And that was Lucky Town. And I remember getting to the record store and being fairly ill-informed because I had no idea that Human Touch existed at the same time. And I stood there baffled for a little while and I somehow had enough money to buy them both and I brought them home. But Lucky Town is my, my Bruce Springsteen record because like I said, it's the the first one that I bought with my own money.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. I am thrilled, often, when I have a really good interview and I talk to someone, I will mention the wonderful Terry Smith's Music Talks podcast, and I will say, hey, would you be interested in me sending your information to Terry because I think you would be a great guest. And Terry recently put out an episode, and as I was listening, I was immediately emailing, going, Terry, is there any way you could connect this? And replied back, I absolutely knew and was expecting your email. Marion is here (laughs) via Terry Smith. Marion, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much. Nice to be here. It's nice to finally connect, and we we had to reschedule this a bunch of times. I'm glad to finally hook up.
0: I am, too. Tell us a little about yourself.
1: Oh, what is there? I'm Canadian. I'm currently living in the UK. I'm based in Edinburgh at the moment. I'm an author and a public speaker and the senior lecturer for popular music and jazz studies at the University of Edinburgh. Senior lecturer is the um, UK equivalent of associate professor. Ah, and nice. I've been here for, I guess, in the UK for sort of seven years, which blows my mind, and in, uh, in Edinburgh for four.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you miss home?
1: Sometimes I do. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff I miss about home, but the UK has been really good to me. So it's nice to be able to go home and visit friends and family and enjoy that, but then to come back here too. So I've been really lucky
0: the way things have turned out. Does it feel like home?
1: It's getting there. It it actually took a lot longer to settle in than I thought it would. My mom's uh, British and Canada's kind of like the UK light, at least we're raised to think that, and I was a little bit surprised by the amount of culture shock, a lot of the groceries are the same and a lot of the, we spell the same. But it, yeah, it it took longer than I thought to settle in, but yeah, it's starting to feel like home.
0: Yeah. What's, is there anything specific you miss from Canada?
1: Honey mustard. It's weird. They don't have that here. (laughs) Mexican food. They don't really have that here either. Don't ever order nachos if you come visit. I miss some of the music scene. Yeah. Like a real jazz scene and a real blues scene and an awful lot of the musical impulses, weirdly, that led me to the career that ended me up here Mm -hmm. are absent in their original forms in the UK. Jazz, blues, soul, rock and roll, stones aside fetal society. So that's, there's often a little bit of a broken telephone sometimes I'm explaining to students or, or going out to hear a band or something like that, but no, it's, it's good to be here.
0: So I, I, I'll I get off this topic, but as living in Texas and where we have, my wife has made it, we have mandatory Tex-Mex at least once a yes. week. What are British nachos?
1: you don't want to know man so the the very worst nachos i think in the history of the world i'm not going to name and shame the pub but the town was birmingham and it's, it's the low point of my nacho eating life i ordered nachos at the bar i hadn't been in the uk long enough to have known better and i was sent microwaved doritos with like cheese whiz and a little sort of cup of ketchup on the side. And then they put out this stuff here. It's it like, it comes in a, like a, like a ketchup bottle and it's green and it, it pretends to be guacamole really badly. Um, so that I, I have a, it's yeah, it's the worst nachos of my life. Never again, never again.
0: So I, I spent a lot of, my dad was in the army. We moved around a lot, but by the time I was in the eighth grade, so 14 or 15, I, we settled in Louisiana, which is where my grandparents lived. They owned a dairy farm. And Southwest Louisiana, like Louisiana is a boot, we were in the heel. And so when we moved to Texas, every once in a while I would order gumbo. And yeah. when it had little ears of corn in it, <laughs> and we were like, okay, you gumbo, corn is not in gumbo. You've made basically chicken soup or something. Yes, I know that feeling. And my wife always, what are you, why are you even trying? What would you even, so that's too funny. All right. I always like to start at the beginning, Mary, and talk about where you grew up and what kind of music was your family listening to when you were younger?
1: I grew up on a small farm a few hours outside of Vancouver. And my parents weren't particularly musical. They never really discouraged it but they didn't actively support it either my dad didn't listen to much music at all till quite a bit later on in his life when he finally got a CD player in his truck and i bought him a few things and i was surprised how much he actually listened to that on long drives Uh, my mom had a small collection of records abba waterloo john denver record she used to listen quite a lot to western movie themes scores that sort of thing Marty Robbins, I remember Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs being uh, being a big big one. She preferred Elvis to the Beatles. She's British, but she preferred Elvis to the Beatles. She always told me, but we didn't have Elvis records. So the music thing, my sister was really big into classical music, and my brother, she's uh, eleven years older than me. My brother was ten years older than me, and he had the kind of normal stuff: Def Leppard, John Bon Jovi. Midnight Oil, Pink Floyd, Michelle, my sister was quite into Jean-Michel Jarre, that kind of thing. But it would all just drift through the wall um, to my bedroom. We didn't share records or anything. Probably if I touched their their records, I would have gotten in trouble. Big moment for me came when I was a little kid, probably in grade four, being taken to the library. We went to the library a lot and I brought home a Chuck Berry 45 and the lights went on at that point. I had been into music before that michael jackson queen stuff that was on the radio i think i started listening to the uh, the top 40 and casey Kasem and all that pretty early on um i remember having a mini pops cassette that had the ire of the tiger on it in the in the 80s and that was before we moved so i must have been six six seven years old um but this chuck berry thing really I think I wore it, well, I couldn't have worn it out, but I don't remember what was on the other side, but Johnny B. Good, I listened to nonstop till I think my mom was probably relieved when we had to take it back to the library.
0: (laughs) Do, were were your family big readers?
1: Yeah, um, again, my dad, not so, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. I was gonna say my dad, not so much, but that's not true. He read a lot of, a lot, actually and he watched a lot of sports on tv but no my dad read a lot and my sister read voraciously as did my mom so it was yeah a reading household but we were busy on the hobby farm in the summertime you didn't come in until it was dark and and by then there wasn't a lot of time for that sort of thing and this was well before portable music so you weren't taking your music with you to do your chores or anything because that wasn't really possible at the time I, i heard my brother's music when he was working on his cars But yeah, everything was different back then in the 80s in terms of the ubiquity of being able to listen to things. Yeah.
0: What all was on the farm? What kind of uh, chores and animals?
1: Oh, it was just a small farm. My dad was a welder by trade, but he had grown up on a sheep station in New Zealand. And I came along and was really into horses. So he used me as an excuse to move out of the suburbs really quick and got a few acres. We later on, they moved into a a bigger place up in the mountains. But when I was growing up, there were horses and, and a lot of chickens and huge gardens. My dad would go to work welding during the day. And my mom took care of the farm. We made some money off of it, but mostly we were somewhat self-sufficient in terms of eggs and sheep and garden produce that sort of thing and I had a
0: horse when one of my favorite songs is Mary's Place Mm -hmm. and that sitting on the front porch because growing up my grandparents had that dairy farm and so as a young teenager I would help grandpa milk cows I never got the early shift I didn't was not someone who would get up at five in the morning to milk the cows on the morning, but the afternoon I would be there and I would, I would brood out the feed and I would help him clean and put on the milkers and help clean up the barn afterwards. But one of my big memories in the fall was shelling peas. They Mm -hmm. had all this gardens and you would pull all these green beans or black oil peas and you would be on the porch in this big wash tubs of beans and you would just sit there and you would shell them and yeah. throw the husks that you would later give to either the pigs or the cows and then you would have all these shelled peas or beans and then grandma would freeze them yeah. and so that that memory of being on the porch with the with my uncle and my mom and everyone talking is a very happy memory for me
1: Yeah, I can relate. Shelling peas and and pitting cherries. I remember just never-ending cherries.
0: (laughs) Oh, I can imagine. We did, and then I remember picking grapes, but I also remember mostly my grandmother canning jelly, making jelly. Mm -hmm. And and it wasn't grape jelly. It wasn't blackberry jelly. It was, I called it, we called it black jelly because the color was black. Right? right. And then, like plums or the other that would be red jelly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those are happy memories. I hated digging potatoes. They would pack this red potatoes on this huge farm. And when we would have to just dig through the dirt to dig them out, and you just never felt as dirty as being on your knees digging in that dirt, getting those red potatoes, throwing them in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I never had to dig potatoes, but I've thrown a lot of hay.
0: Oh, yeah. We that <laughs> I, I and listeners, I promise we're going to get to music, but I don't often get people who can talk about that there. I don't know if there was ever a better moment than you're hauling hay all day, right? You're in the sun, you're they've cut the hay, they have bailed it. So you're picking up the bales, putting it on the trailer. You Then you unstack the hay into the barn, and by the time the day is over, there's hay everywhere in your body, and you would shower, and you, God, I I can't believe how clean I feel, and then grandma and mom and everyone would have been cooking all day, and there's this huge meal waiting for you, and it was just this, once again, this cathartic family moment.
1: That's no, great. I was just going to say, I remember as a kid, after all the haying was done that me and the neighbor kids in the big barn in that big hay loft, we would make, thinking back on it now, and it was incredibly dangerous, but we would make these, we would see how many, if, if you could squeeze down between the bales yes. and if you could make your way all the way down to the end and back. And we had these mazes, hundreds yeah. of thousands of pounds of hay, and we're squeezing our way between the bales. Yeah. yeah I remember that. You would
0: move the hay to make a fort. And you'd yes. be on top yeah, yeah. of that, just talking to your cousins and going and who knows how many snakes and mice and rats <laughs> might be there. But to you, there was just that it you didn't care. It was just it was no. part of it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Did you know, did you always know you wanted to be a teacher, an academic?
1: I don't think of myself as a teacher which is probably a bad thing okay <laughs> I'm 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 good at it I win teaching awards but I think of myself as an academic I think of myself more as a writer first and uh okay. and a researcher first and teaching is a byproduct of that it's really the almost the smallest part of what I do in terms of okay. like number of hours I stand in a classroom each week but no I remember when I was younger I don't know 12 or 13 years old trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up or whatever i liked school and i was good at it and i liked the kind of the satisfaction of thinking <laughs> okay if that if that's and I, and I was a writer already so i i had an inkling that academia at least the way it was pr- portrayed in the movies, seemed like maybe that would be all right um but i put that aside for a really long time and it almost accidentally is where i've ended up but perhaps i knew what i was doing back when i was 12 it just took me a while to get there i don't know <laughs> okay
0: can you remember when you discovered Bruce and what about his music spoke to you?
1: Well, that's two two questions. I've been thinking about this, and no, I don't. Bruce Springsteen was ubiquitous at that time in North America. He was on the music magazines. He was in the newspapers. He was on the radio all the time. So I don't remember a Bruce Springsteen aha moment. I don't even remember that my brother was into Bruce Springsteen. I, I know that I heard some of Bruce's music when my brother was working on his car, but my brother was more a Bon Jovi guy. So I, I don't have an aha moment. The album, I guess, that was the aha moment for me, because it was the first one that I went and took my own money and, and bought a Bruce Springsteen album at the store. And that was Lucky Town. And I remember getting to the record store and being fairly ill-informed because I had no idea that Human Touch existed at the same time. And I stood there baffled for a little while. And I somehow had enough money to buy them both and I brought them home. But Lucky Town is my, my Bruce Springsteen record. Cause like I said, it's the, the first one that I bought with my own money. But saying that born in the USA was my soundtrack a lot of my adolescence, partly cause that stuff was just on the radio. I did have it on cassette. Yeah.
0: I would not have picked Lucky Town if I'm guessing that's unique. I love that. Better days. I love that
1: record. I, I love that record.
0: Better days is when people ask me who are not Springsteen fans or like when they hear about it, they go, Oh, what's your favorite Bruce song? And I always go land of hope and dreams and better days are my two topped. And then the third changes every day. So I love that.
1: I, I think it's, I think it's maybe interesting, at least that like my Bruce Springsteen record, the record that I liked enough that I went and bought it after probably must have been better days was probably the single on the radio that made me want to go and buy buy the record yeah. but it was the other band yeah so i never really got this kind of imprinted with the e street band thing that i think a, a, an awful lot of people have had because of when they got into the music with him so i think that might have helped me become a little non-denominational about bruce from the get-go <laughs> in a way that that I've been enjoying now that I can see where the political fault lines are some of these musical iterations, but yeah, lucky. To I,
0: yeah, non-denominational. I love that, right? You're band agnostic. That, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's pretty good. I always like to preface this Marion with the amount of times you've seen Bruce perform live is not a fair barometer of how big of a fan you are, but if Have you seen him live? And if so, how many times? I
1: I have, but like full disclosure, full confession, I made a whole series of poor life choices that have led to me only seeing him four times and all of it the last tour. First time I saw him live was in twenty twenty three, which is like I said, a a series of bad life choices and also just life taking me in slightly different directions and it never really lined up why I didn't see him in twenty sixteen that one kind of that i don't understand but before 2016 it was fairly unlikely like growing up sort of ruralish canada with media being the way it was back then i just either didn't get the tour announcements or didn't have the money um didn't have somebody to go with And, and he also like i said it was so ubiquitous there wasn't the sense that you had to go now that there wouldn't be another opportunity And then I became a jazz musician and the the jazz hole is very deep and exclusive and you get blinkers. And Bruce Springsteen could have walked by me on the sidewalk in New York during the the jazz period and I would have not been interested. It took a little while. It took me coming out of the, the jazz cave and then having enough disposable income and sort of social media allowing me to be in touch with when tickets were going on sale and stuff like that and for that i'll thank howie Chaz and the spring nuts because following their sort of twitter feeds you're in a whole spring scene on broadway thing really unleashed the floodgates of kind of information and being able to keep tabs on what was happening and and how to engage with it
0: yes shout out to spring nuts always and and the great howie and julie so Couple of things I want to go through there, but I'm gonna share. I didn't see him till 2002. I it just for the exact same things. I was growing up in rural Louisiana. He never came to Louisiana when we moved to Dallas in 80 or no 80. Just wouldn't have been in our radar. We were broke. I remember wanting to see him during the reunion tour, but just it didn't work out. And so it wasn't till 2002 when I got to see him. And in a lot of ways, like American football, when a team misses an extra point, you feel like they're chasing it the rest of the game. I feel like I'm chasing, I can't catch up all those shows I missed, but I'm going to do the best I can. In my case, people, and I'm very okay with, the quote-unquote static set list but and they're like you would go I guess I'm going to go as many times I can because I I haven't got to see him perform that many times I guess maybe if I'd been one of those people that's seen him 50 or 60 times maybe I'd be a little more picky but me I'm like no I'm still chasing all those highs of seeing him live
1: yeah I'm thankful I think that I'm fairly pragmatic about all this I think seeing him live i think that came into my life at the right time maybe if i'd forced that earlier when i didn't have the money or i was too young for it or i was just too focused or thinking about other things i might not have gotten out of it what i got out of it this year so i'm I'm trying not to think about making up for lost time because that doesn't feel like lost time to me it just feels like time differently spent and maybe lucky, lucky town maybe that as that weird album or that's yeah not that it's a weird album, but it's a weird album maybe to be your first Bruce album. Maybe it's a little weird for this to be my first live experiences, but it's just the way it lined up. I'm I'm not an everything happens for a reason kind of person, but everything happens for a reason.
0: There you go, Marion. Talk to me, what did you get out of this tour? You mentioned that. And then I am going to go back to your jazz cave life. I'm interested in that. But what did you, what do you feel like you got out of this tour?
1: Ah, it was. I'm, I'm gonna keep going as as long as as he lets us, as long as this is something that we can do, almost in whatever iteration he chooses to do it with an yeah. asterisk after that, because the carnival ride's so fun. I was something about talking about Bruce Springsteen that makes you, you get all uh, idealistic and stuff, but um, a little bit, I had my my faith in folks restored um 2023 is in a lot of ways i think the first proper full almost normal post-pandemic year and um i had been through uh, some rough patches as i think an awful lot of people have over the last few years and i didn't know what to expect i knew what to expect but not from the the crowd i knew about the pit and how it all worked but i'd never done it before and i figured it could go one of two ways <laughs> and people were absolutely lovely every single person that I've come into contact with as part of all of this has just been fantastic I've made friends that I'm keeping in touch with outside of Bruce I've been able to come on a couple of shows yours and others and it's just been this really richly rewarding human experience I guess that's the number one thing I got out of it I don't know how to put this but I got I guess from the audience side of it In some ways, the way it can feel sometimes when the music's going right and you're on the stage side of it and feeling 65,000 people all lift together is a pretty cool thing.
0: (laughs) Did, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I was lucky enough to have a David Lee. And I got to
1: see him, uh, sorry to interrupt. And I got to see him in Europe and. I, no offense, Americans, no offense, Canadians, I haven't seen Canadian audiences really, but looking at the live feeds from some live feeds and some after on YouTube, they're the, what folks say about European crowds is true. I'm really glad I got to see them over here.
0: Yeah, I don't think that is an insult to American crowds at all. I just think it is just the culture is a little different and it just mm-hmm. seems to be something a little special. I had David Leaf on the show who has written a wonderful book, biography of Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. And at the end of our interview, I was talking to him and I said, the last time I saw Brian, he walked out on a walker. And it seemed like I wasn't sure I'd go back and see him again. It wasn't painful, but it just, why are you still doing this? And David said that there are three reasons why Brian still tours. One, he loves the band behind him playing his music. And he gets a sense of joy and pride hearing this amazing band playing the music he wrote. Secondly, he adores the love coming from the audience as they hear his music He gets this wave of affection and love and energy from that crowd. And he loves room service. (laughs) And so you talked about as a musician, you have experienced that energy from a crowd.
1: Yeah. But interestingly, the three reasons that were just given for Brian Wilson are all about Brian. And I don't think if you asked Bruce, his reasons would necessarily be about Bruce. I think there's a way to, to, there's a way to, to think about music and there's a way to think about being a celebrity, um, about the ego. And then there's a way to do the exact same thing, but put the focus on the music. And I think in Bruce's case, also probably to put the focus on the audience and probably to put some focus on the band, but not in a, isn't it cool to have the band behind me sort of way. I've seen an awful lot of the septuagenarian and octogenarian blues musicians and jazz musicians who in some ways were a shadow of their former selves if what if the only thing we value about music is music as athleticism faster louder higher stronger but many of these artists were playing the absolutely most poignant meaningful music of their lives when they had to sit in a chair but the music at that point is the sole focus it's not about ego and it's not about oh hey look at me i'm, I'm john lee hooker i, I, I want to have that adoration from the, from the crowd it's a, it's about the music as something more important than artist more important than the crowd it's the thing that we're all there to we've already been quad, quasi-religious but venerate so I, i'm pretty sure bruce won't go that route, I, think Wilson so. route.
0: <laughs> I don't either and by the way I mean that no disrespect against Brian. I adore him oh, I Adore it. his music. Yeah. I knew you but did. There are different,
1: there, there, there are different yeah. ways to approach, to approach it and it's, it's, it's yeah. not a, it doesn't make you a good person or a bad person, but it's a different way to, to look at music as an activity and, yeah. a, and where we place value there and yeah, it's just different, yeah, different, different approaches to the same puzzle.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to go back. How did you, we talked about it. You said that you're not necessarily. Dream to be an academic, definitely didn't be a teacher, but what led you to making music? What led you to this jazz life as you talked about it? Tell me a little bit about that journey, Marion.
1: Oh, that's a long story. I, I told it fairly comprehensively on the Music Talk podcast, okay. but didn't have a lot of support. I was music nuts from about the age of six or seven in a way now that I think. Was possibly strange or unusual for a kid but my sister had been told by a bad music teacher that she was tone deaf so music was not something that was tried on me really I was once offered if I wanted to take lessons But at that point, I was already listening to Chuck Berry and people like that, and I was offered classical piano lessons. So I said, no, thanks. And my mom said, what else do you want to do? And I found the one thing in the catalog that had jazz on it. So I took an ill-fated few weeks of jazz dance classes. And that was not what I thought it was going to (laughs) be. I saved up my money and I got a guitar when I was 12 years old, a black acoustic, a hondo. And... I paid for some guitar lessons with what i now recognize was a terrified terrible teenage teacher and didn't learn very much other than a couple of ccr tunes but i figured out how to play the blues scale and i was getting along with it and then via a friend of mine ended up getting interested in the clarinet she was messing around with the trumpet at the time and took that reasonably seriously yeah. um again no lessons just self-taught and then ended up getting in sort of the jazz scene uh, initially as a listener and I was always interested in history and things. So talking to some of the last surviving architects of the of the jazz scene in Vancouver near where I was living. Mm-hmm. I got to learn quite a lot about music that way and then started getting musical education from jazz musicians and got a saxophone. In a scene that could be from a Blues Brothers movie, I sold my 1964 Mustang to buy a saxophone. (laughs) And yeah, just at that point I was way late. I had a lot of anxiety about starting later than all of the, the folks say that you should so I started practicing four, six, eight, 12 hours a day and had the great fortune to have some of the greatest musicians uh, in the world take time out to show me how to do things and spend time with me. And it still blows my mind, actually, some of the folks that that I got to hang out with that that helped me. And I spent eight years off and on studying with a guy named Lee Konitz in New York. And yeah, that's how that went.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I, you... Marion does go into this a little more in depth on Terry Smith's Music Talk podcast. I'll include the link in the show notes. It is worth hearing. I just, I don't want to have to make Marion repeat herself, but I did want to touch on that for my audience. When I, when did you, what made you think you wanted to. Change that where you were performing jazz, and then what was next for you? What was the driving
1: force? I I was that was what I was gonna do, but I was I knew some of the greatest jazz musicians in North America, and pretty much everybody had a second job. Most for most of those guys, it was teaching music at the New School or teaching music at NYU or something like Mm that. Looked around and I thought, wow, if all these guys have got a second gig, I'm gonna need a second gig too, and I'd have to decide whether I wanted to do the route that those guys were doing and an awful lot of my peers and my friends in Canada were doing the same thing. And I did a lot of music teaching myself as, partly paying the rent that way. Uh, but I thought, did I want to teach disinterested kids how to pay their diminished scales for the rest of my life or not? And then I remembered that I was pretty good at that school thing, and I had already been talking to a lot of older musicians and was really interested in some of the local histories of jazz. And I was also studying with Lee Konitz and not very much had been written on him at the time. So I went back to do my master's degree on full scholarship, which seemed to me like unemployment insurance for musicians. It was amazing. I took fewer bad gigs while I was doing that. Um, an awful lot of, of musicians were moving towards doing postgrad studies, partly for the same reason. But by the time I finished my master's, which I found really rewarding, um, I knew I was going to do a PhD and see if I could make this academic thing my full time job. Nobody really told me at the time that deciding to say, hey, I'd like to be an academic, was just about as stupid a thing to say as I'd like to be a professional jazz musician in terms of the job market. Okay. <laughs> but nobody told me that, which was really good, because ignorance is energy, you know? <laughs> and I was really fortunate, again, I found the PhD really, really rewarding. I worked with Professor Rob Bowman, who literally wrote the book on Stacks bolt. He was fantastic to work with, and I was really fortunate to get a lot of the work that I did in university published in academic journals while I was a student, and that helped me get a job pretty quickly after graduating, though it meant I had to move to the UK.
0: And what were some of the articles about?
1: About jazz, about you know, Lee Konitz and uh, Lenny Tristano and some of the musicians in that, in that sort of scene, Ted Brown, I think I was, I published the first paper on Ted Brown. Um, and that sort of thing, improvisation, jazz pedagogy, that sort of thing. I do have a, a Bruce Springsteen article in the works at the moment. It's, it's off. It's with peer reviewers. so We'll wait and see what they, they have to say.
0: How does it work teaching or being an academic? Do, do they give you what you're going to address in front of students? Do you help? Do you go and say, hey, I've got an idea for a curriculum or for a course and go, how, how does that work, Marion?
1: Yeah, I've, I'm really fortunate. I've got a ludicrously fun job. Sometimes as an academic, yeah, you have to teach some things that you might not jump up and down to want to teach because it's part of yeah. the core curriculum and, and i've done i've paid my dues i've paid i've done my years of teaching theory but now i teach a big first year course which is mandatory for music students but an elective across the whole university on sort of an intro to popular music which is great and i get to say whatever i like in that and then i teach an honors course on jazz and i teach a course Humphrey springsteen basically it's called three minute records exists as a version for undergraduate students and as a version for postgrad students. And it started as a dare to myself when I tried one year to teach everything I was trying to get students to know about um, gender and race and technology and value and genre and technology and all of these important issues in music. So I challenged myself one year, can I do this entire course using nothing but Bruce Springsteen examples? And it turns out that I could. That kind of morphed into a course where I teach um, this case study course I use Bruce Springsteen the students can choose Bruce if they want to mostly they don't they choose other artists but it's trying to teach them how to think critically about the music that they listen to in their daily lives of the music they really care about how do some of the things that we're talking about technology and copyright and social listening and the sociology of listening and streaming and formats vinyl versus digital downloads versus eight tracks and race theory and gender theory and all of these things, how do they apply to the artists that you are listening to or that you really like? Because in some way or another, they probably do. And so the students are allowed to focus whatever lens they they prefer. Maybe they're into composition, maybe they're into technology, maybe they are more into the social history of music, and then they pick their own artist and spend a whole semester analyzing them.
0: Why did you pick Bert?
1: Because it was, like I said, it started out as a dare to myself, but it's quite powerful to be able to use an artist that a lot of my 17, 18, 19 year old students under understand or miscomprehend and use him to teach all of these things. And it, I think helps show students the depth that's available in popular music and how you can be really critically Tricky when it comes to artists and how maybe sometimes an artist that you think is one thing when you peel back the layer a little bit actually has a lot more to offer. And because it makes going to work really fun for me.
0: Yes. the I remember the sometimes the idea that I've had other academics on the podcast and there's a wonderful guy, Stephen Malio, that actually does a whole course. And he was on, he comparing Bruce Springsteen on Broadway to Homer's Iliad. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's some things, there's been other courses. I often ask the question when I'm told by someone, well, I don't like Bruce Springsteen's music. I go, have you listened to anything besides Born in the USA? And I don't mean that in an ugly way. I love Born in the USA. I, I think it's a gateway album to many fans but he is much more than that as you were building this to see if you could build that what is there anything that surprised you as you were putting this together that you went oh I didn't that's cool
1: not not really okay <laughs> I, that's totally, okay. I, I knew what I was getting into, it's turned out to be a lot more fun and richly rewarding than I thought it would be. I've been doing it for chunky years now and I, I don't have Bruce Springsteen in the title of the course on purpose so that if, and when I want to do somebody else, I can without having to submit a whole bunch of paperwork again. Sure. And I'm a tiny bit surprised that I'm still using Bruce, but again, that's just a testament to how much richness there is in his music. Yeah, that I can keep finding these different examples and that it's not getting stale for me because as soon as it starts to get stale for me, I probably will take a break and do a different artist for a while because I would hate to start thinking of Bruce Springsteen as work uh, rather than joy. But it's been easy. I was a little surprised by how few students really had a sense of who he was. I always have one or two or three that know him from usually from their parents. Um, But an awful lot of them have absolutely no idea at all. Uh, And it's really fun kind of watching the light bulbs turn on for them um, about this kind of surprising depth sometimes. And um, a lot of them have seen the iconography from Born in the USA. So they have an expectation politically they have an expectation about attitudes towards women they have an expectation i really enjoy teaching the, the couple weeks i do on bruce springsteen and african-american music bruce springsteen and race here's this white kid or, or white guy now that Ronald Reagan found super, super resonant. But if you dig even the tiniest bit, tiny bit into his music, it's completely indebted to the richness of African-American musical traditions and to, as he calls it, rock and soul. So I, I, I love teaching that. That's my favorite kind of music is African-American music, blues, soul, jazz, and that Bruce kind of sits into that in a way that's satisfyingly unproblematic, really. Yeah, it's a lot of fun and and the kids have a lot of fun with that too.
0: You know, down south one of the worst insults you can give is yeah, you know, he forgot where he came from. Yeah. And and it feels like Bruce never forgot where he came from and where his music came from.
1: No, and he's one of the, James Brown has passed now, so I think we could possibly pass the hardest working man in show business mantle over to Springsteen Yeah. uh, in terms of the amount of, and I use this example with my students too, the amount of homework that he does. He's a guy without a college education who says he can't read music. I disagree with him on that. He could read chord symbols just fine. Who knows more about the history of rock and roll and more about the history of American music than most people with my jobs and it comes out in every note that he plays. He's one of the most educated musicians that you could hope to find.
0: Yeah, I think, and one of the things that when I read Little Stephen's book that came out <laughs> last year is it was a not only a memoir about himself, but in a lot of ways, the history of music. And, oh, yeah. And I, Parts yeah. of that book
1: were fantastic.
0: Yeah, uh, for yeah. that very reason. And I'm, yeah, it appears... I also love the fact that at this point in his career, he is not afraid to reinvent himself. Letter to You is very different than the this soul, this soul Cover album. And, and before that, Western Stars. I think he's still pushing himself musically. And mm-hmm. I also think he's still having fun, as you can see with the show.
1: I think he's definitely having fun. I don't think he's reinventing himself. I just think he's never allowed himself to be pigeonhole the western stars there's that thread runs all the way through at least back to nebraska but yeah. possibly even further yeah uh, letter to you is his live off the floor old school vintage rock and roll street cred record yes a, a little bit of broadway rehabilitation i think and then the soul album Man, i can't wait for the tour to take my money
0: yeah exactly absolutely <laughs> this has been so much fun i feel like we could keep talking but i don't want to keep you too much longer Is there, are there albums or songs that, as the years of you being a fan, that resonate with you, that have a special place in your heart?
1: There are a few. I know a lot of people hate it, but I I love it. And I was really fortunate to hear it played uh, at two of the shows I was at Darlington County, just because of where that sits in the road trip memoirs of my adolescent life and a really good friend and I, and what that tune meant to us, a 16-year-old yeah. girls driving around in muscle cars. Atlantic City, that Lucky Town record, I just love it. That hasn't gotten old. And oddly, maybe most of Magic. I yeah. really like, that was a slow burn record. That one kind of crept up on me, but that's one I can listen to all the way through over and over again. And Letter to You is a great rock record.
0: It really is. I have a sentimental attachment to it, not only because I think it's very good musically, But it's context of end of 2020. And I had said at the time, if we could have gotten a new Bruce Springsteen record and a new president, maybe 2020 would not be the worst year of all ever. And so I felt I was lucky enough to get if I was the priest twice live, which I was just floored. So yeah, I just, I think it's just, it's really something special. So what's next for you? What's next for you academically? What's next for you musically? Do you still pull out the saxophone and play sometimes?
1: I don't. I keep telling myself that I will, that this is the year I'll get back to it. But academia ended up taking more hours of my life than than I thought it would. And the transatlantic move was a bit harder than I thought it would be, reintegrating in and building a social life and a social safety network and everything here. So it just different things became important sure i do feel i owe it to the folks that spent so much time on me to to get back to it at some point but i've stopped putting a date on it um i still know how to do it i still got the horn Uh, i still teach i I am paying it forward in terms of um hoping that my students will pick up a little bit from what my teachers told me about the saxophone uh, and about just improvising and and what music can be um but beyond that, I, d- I don't know. I'm hoping to get back to doing a bit of research. I've got a, a few things on their way out. It's a couple of Bruce Springsteen articles. I've got a, okay. I've got a book out, but that's on uh, Canadian jazz cooperatives. And it's okay. It's be a, a fairly niche audience for that one. So yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what comes next.
0: Did I do want to ask? Have you war- read Warren Zane's book Delivery from Nowhere? Have you have?
1: I have. Yeah, I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, I did too. What surprised me, and I told him this, I was lucky enough to interview him, I said it almost read like a mystery novel. Yeah, Why are Why is he making this choice at this time? And I found it was just a wonderful story. Really well done. So good. All right. Any final thoughts or anything I should have asked you that I haven't, Marion?
1: Are you going to ask me the Mary question?
0: Yes, I am. That's how I end every episode.
1: Okay anything else before that i don't think so
0: okay this has been a blast all right so i end every episode with the merry question what the merry question is jay armstrong who is a retired honors english teacher but when he was teaching he would give his high school seniors a copy of the lyrics to thunder road and they would discuss it as if it was a poem they would discuss the imagery and the word choices bruce uses and at at the end of the day he would ask his students does mary get in the car so marion that is your question does mary get in the car at the end of thunder road
1: i i will answer that but before i answer that isn't the biggest bigger question does the boy leave town without her or with her because the way that the song is framed it isn't an ultimatum it isn't i'm going with you or without you instead he's imploring her not to turn him home again so I got this real sense that he's with, that he doesn't have the guts to leave town on his own. That if she doesn't get in the car, he's going back where he came from. Resigned to a s- sort of a life of desperation, right? Because he's looking to her for the courage required to get out. At no point does he say, I'm leaving with you or without you. I'm jump in. This is your last chance. It's right there at the beginning. Don't turn me home again.
0: I love and, that answer. I've never heard that view before. I think that's yeah. amazing.
1: Yeah. So that's, to me, is the bigger question is what happens to the dude, whatever the answer is. Do I think Mary gets in the car? I'm feeling optimistic today. So I will say yes, Mary gets in the car. She didn't before when she was in high school because sense of maybe things will get better. Maybe this isn't so bad. But now that they're a bit older, I think she does get in the car. But I'm more interested in what happens if she doesn't. Or does he just go home?
0: I've never heard that. I love that. I did have close to that. A One of my guests said that when the E Street band plays Thunder Road, she absolutely gets in the car because it ends triumphant. Yeah. With Bruce's, with Clarence or Jake's saxophone, and the band plays it, and they're in the car driving out together. When Bruce does it solo... She doesn't, and he drives off by himself because when Bruce ends it, it's much more melancholy, sad. So, which I, I love that.
1: But I think he's going home because there is never this sense of I'm leaving town. You can come with me or not. It's will you please, please come with me in order that I would have the courage to be able to leave town because I know it's hopeless and desperate, but I can't quite do it on my own. And if you don't get in the car, I'm don't turn me home again. It's right there in what, the second or third line.
0: I love that. I will never think that differently. That is great. Uh Marion, if someone wants to reach you, what's the best way?
1: I'm pretty Googleable. Okay. You can find my academic email address there. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Marion Jago. Can we still call it Twitter? Or do we have to uh, call it I X? Do. That feels I really can, weird.
0: Yeah, it does. It's 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 like when they when your favorite sports arena gets changed and you still call it that. So I think that way. Yes. Mm-hmm. So
1: I'm on that. Or like I said, I'm fairly level. Okay. I teach at the University of Edinburgh. You can find me if you'd like to.
0: Okay. That is awesome. Thank you. This was so much fun. I owe Terry a thank you as always, but this was just a wonderful visit. Thank you for taking part of your Sunday afternoon. I forgot to make my normal timey-wimey joke that this is my morning, your afternoon. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. Let's end with now: a life of leisure and a pirate's treasure don't make much for tragedy. It's a sad man, my friend, who's living in his own skin and can't stand the company. Every fool's got a reason for feeling sorry for himself and turning his heart to stone. Tonight, this fool's halfway to heaven and just a mile out of hell, and I feel like I'm coming home. These are better days.
1: Fantastic. Really enjoyable to chat. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, listeners. Be kind, be safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. There we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, so if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at SetLustingBruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, Perfectly Good Podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast with my brother in time, Charles Skaggs. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon.